Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and digital production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to have Rich Mathai, uh, and he is from Full Scale AV, and he's going to talk about the prosoacoustic acoustic treatment. These are actually pretty cool. <laughs> I looked at them before the show. Uh, a lot of really like kind of, a lot of us have some relatively inexpensive ones. Mine, mine, mine is really inexpensive. It's uh, it's moving blankets, but but the uh, but these ones are much nicer. <laughs> so he's going to talk about them in the second hour. So if you've got questions, check it out. It's um, it's uh, prosoacoustic.com. Uh, check it out before we get to the second hour and put your questions in, um, and then that'll give us a good start. We've got a lot of questions for today. Bill, what, what do we have? Our first one comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, and Jeff says, has anyone used Zoom's newer live performance audio mode with a group, given everyone must have it enabled for it to work? Did you notice any appreciable difference in latency? Good, Courtney. Uh, I haven't used it yet, but it looks like a perfect candidate next time we have a birthday on this show, we could try it. I don't know if it works in the mode of Zoom that we're using. I think we'd all have to do it, including all the bots. I don't think, I don't know if it would. It would work for us. <laughs> so, uh, but but I haven't. I mean, it should be measurably less. Um, the quality may not be as high. This is really so for folks listening. Live performance audio is really designed to lower the latency so that people could theoretically play back and forth. This isn't the original uh, sound for musicians that we have um, that we normally use to increase the quality. It's really designed for people to be able to jam. So um, the latency goes down, but some of the stability may not be there. At, um, but we haven't really tested it very heavily yet. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Okay, so you may have answered one of my questions, which is, um, and we actually on their help page or, or support, they do give some specs for some things. Not they they do give some of the specs for what original uh, sound, and then with actually with high fidelity music mode. Uh, now I assumed live performance audio was a superset of that. You you seem to think it's not that it's trading off possibly lower latency for quality because the original sound with high fidelity. Uh, uh, raises up the um, the the bit rate and and some other things. Um, yeah, and... I don't I don't think it will. I think that when you as you lower the latency, what you're doing is you're taking buffer away from what you're doing, and so that can oftentimes yield a lower you know, lower quality stream. The stream itself may sound really good, but if everyone doesn't have a perfect connection, so this is the kind of thing where everybody in live performance mode has to be wired. Has and they say that actually has to, you know, like all of those things. And even then you're on the internet, the open internet, the public internet, not a private internet, not your, you know, so, so I think that those are the, you know, that's some of the challenges um, related to that. Um, it is something we should probably test we'll have to figure out a way to do that. You know, we need a couple of musicians. I think that uh, when a couple of our, maybe, maybe get the uh, remotes to come in and do a test in, in but it'd probably be in its own meeting uh, or we could probably set it. What we do a lot of times to test latency is we take an iPad and we take a webcam and point it at it. <laughs> so it shows up coming back to us. Um, and uh, we can see the iPad in both both screens and, and we can see what the offset is. But and do we do we even us. know if this this works with ISO? Because they, they make a point that everyone must have this enabled. So there's there's some extra secret we'll some research negotiation. On it. I, don't, I don't know. We'll do some we'll have to do some uh, research on it. I think that <clears throat> I think that the jamming function whether it's this or something else is 
it's really cool. I think it's really hard to do well. <laughs> so I think that it's, uh, so it'll be, it'd be really interesting to see how far they've taken it. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, it dawned on me when Jeff was talking there. Um, I don't think it matters if it works in ISO. Because we, if you're talking about a bunch of us singing happy birthday, let's use that as the example. We need, in this particular show, we need to hear each other in sync so that we could sing happy birthday. But we're all sitting in this this Zoom meeting anyway. It only has to work in this room. ISO will pull the stuff out, presumably. But I, I don't know if it'll. I don't know if it'll turn on. If not every, I think every window in the screen, every window in the meeting, the meeting. And has to have it set. They yeah. explicitly and say everyone must have this enabled, so yeah, it implies right. some secret handshake or something that possibly it, it could be yeah. that every. Part everybody who wants to be in sync has to be enabled. Or it no, could I be think it's changing window. modes on, at the reflector. And for for people who don't understand, the way we pull this off is we get in a Zoom meeting, and then all of the Zoom drones, the Zoom ISO machines, get in the meeting too. I forget about that because normally I turn off the uh, you know hide non-video participants. I know Preto likes to leave that on because I watched him over his shoulder, which is weird. Uh, but um, yeah, so there are six other uh, non-video participants, which are our machines that do all the magic stuff that Alex has invented. It's crazy. <laughs> I haven't invented it. There's, there's a dev team. I mostly well, just go, why can't we do this? And then, then magicians in the back end. You Steve Jobs did. There's a bunch of wazes working underneath you. <laughs> all right, well. Uh, anyway, the um, yeah, it, it is a... Uh, it's... Um, I think that I think that you have to have it. Everyone, everyone be in it, including the ISO, including these little extra frames we have and everything else, because I think it's changing the mode and the reflector. But we'll we'll, we'll do some research on that and see if we can't figure it out. I, I know people we can call, talk to about that. Uh, next next question. Do you now? Liberty White comes to us from Atlanta, Georgia, and Liberty says YouTube updated their rules around AI generated content and monetization. How will this impact creators? What is and isn't acceptable for channels? that want to monetize. You know, you can post a link to that or ask that again, Liberty. Uh, I couldn't find anything new. The last time I saw updates um, around this was in, um, uh, there's a Google searches guidance about AI generated content, but that was back in February. So I don't know if, uh, I don't know if anything new has happened, but I, I did reach out to some folks <laughs> at YouTube in the last couple of minutes to try to figure it out. And I haven't, haven't seen any extra extra data there. Um, the, I think that I, I think it probably would make sense for YouTube to say, given all the lawsuits and all the other things, you can't monetize things that have, that are primarily AI. I think if you're talking about AI, if you're showing how to do prompts, if you're, do, you, if you're discussing it, I think it's probably fine. Um, I think that if you're just purely pushing out AI as content, I think that that might be what they're talking about, but I have, I can't find the exact thing that you're showing there. So hopefully you can put some more information and we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, a DaVinci Resolve multicam edit in a DaVinci Resolve multicam edit using the numeric keys to switch camera angles works, but only on the top row of a full-size Apple Magic keyboard. How do I utilize the keys on the number pad? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, on the Apple keyboard, which uh, 
tends to not label their keyboards correctly. <clears throat> uh, the uh, clear key can work as the numlock key, uh, and you have to go into your uh, user settings to make sure clear key equals numlock key. So it could be that that clear key or the numlock key is not turned on, and once you hit the clear key, which is on the upper right, right below F16, uh, it should turn on numlock, and then perhaps that numlock, those numlock keys, those number keys on the keypad should work. Go ahead, Chris. May it go down on the record, this is the 1,000th day in a row that Courtney has criticized Apple. Also, uh, John, you should put this in the database. This will be the one and possibly only time I defend Da Vinci. Uh, Alexander, don't be crazy. Nobody uses the keypad, okay? When you're cutting cameras, you use the number row up above because the metaphor is it's like the program bus. So you have, they have to be laid out in a row, not in a square. So don't be crazy. Just use the ones that are important and leave those other poor keys alone, okay? Go ahead, Jeff. A little-known fact that might work for this is that you actually can remap keys on most apps. So, and this is a Mac OS thing. Uh, if you go into the uh, settings, and I think it's the keyboard, um, there's a... Um, uh, it, it's for keyboard, there's a keyboard shortcuts, and then there's a section for apps. And you, what you do is you enter what the menu command is. If it doesn't have a keyboard shortcut, it's easy. You just give it one. If it does, you need to move that to something else and make sure you're not overlapping. And then you can give it your own keyboard shortcut. And I found this works with, with most apps. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I will say this, Alexander. It's very interesting. One of the things that I learned a long time ago about learning new ways of working is letting go of the old ways you did it because there just might be a different uh, thought process that went into the software that you're using. Don't, Alex. I know what you're gonna say, and just just hold on to it. Uh, so that you hold on to things all the time. Oh my God. I'm the worst at it. Aren't I? So here's the deal. Here's the deal. You're right. And, and I told you that be nice. Okay. We're supposed to be nice here. This is, I'm, I'm playing by your rules anyway. So, uh, I would have, I would, I'm just saying, Alexander, I would have never thought to use the keypad to switch between sources unless I was just doing three sources and then maybe it, it makes sense because you don't have to reach over all the QWERTY keys to get to the num key. Anyway, I, I'm going to stop talking. Go ahead. Let's do the next question. Good, Bill. Well, I was just going to say really quickly, I, it, for me, uh, Final Cut's approach to it in, in multicam switching is to just let you click on the picture in the multicam setup, and it takes that instantly. And so I don't use a keyboard. When I have in the past, though, they have this whole back-end system to do customized keyboards and remap keyboards, which some people find very useful. And here's what I was trying to say by commenting on this. I don't. To me, every time I have remapped a part of my keyboard for a specific job, I've run into later having found out that I got distracted and left it there, and I come back to do something, and nothing works. And I have to stop and remember, oh, I've got to go switch the keyboard again and go back. To me, the best machine is one that is as close to stock as possible and works the same way every time I sit down in it because I think less. All, all my muscle memory works every time because it's always the same. So you may be different than me and you may want that specialized for when I'm in this mode, I need this keyboard and that's fine. I just don't do that. I can't 
manage that in my brain. Yeah, I, I, I think that most people who really, really customize their keyboards a lot or, or, or use Alfred or use lots of other things only have one computer. Like they, crazy. Like they're also no, crazy. no, they, they only have one computer. Like it's, it's, that's their computer. Like if for, for folks like me that have lots of computers that I sit down at either at work or here, there's probably 20 different computers that I might sit down at. I do not want to fix, I don't, I don't want to customize anything. I, I have to force my mind to know where those keys are because I just don't know where I'll, I will be. And, uh, trying to, trying to keep all of them up to date would be hard. Um, the, um, I do think that thinking about Alex's question, it would be cool if the grid, it wasn't, if the numbers weren't in the order that, you know, the number itself, but if you had a, a three by three grid in, in Resolve and seven, eight, nine were the top grid and the other ones are the middle grid. So you could sit there and just, you know, go up and down and, and hit it. And that'd be kind of cool. I would say that would be a, a cool setup. Could you make Is that there? really easy through a stream deck? Could you just, yeah, I think you could map. I think even now you could map it through a stream deck. That's what I was, yeah, that was going to suggest be. is you could just yeah. you could just map all the keys at the top to a stream deck and then you'd be done. And they're on sale right now for only uh, $116. Not that I just bought one. The last time they were on sale that we all acted on it. $99. I, I never got it. I never got it either. I only, I, but but the thing is, is that I only bought it so that I could talk about it on MacBreak. So I, I, I knew that it wasn't going to show up. I, so it was in 90, other it was words, this it was a $99 cost thing. you two hundred and sixteen dollars. Yeah, so whatever. it's a little, it costs a little more. But the other one was was literally, I, I spent money. This is what I, I sometimes do that for the show, you know, as as part of my my MacBreak fund is to go do stupid things with electronics so that I can talk about it on the show. That's why they, anyway. <laughs> next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. What would be a solid office-friendly lighting package to use for a high-quality picture on Zoom? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the uh, Nanlite 6Cs. Um, I think that they, they work really well. Um, there's a Pavo tubes. Um, and I, I don't think I have one within reach. I usually do. I usually have one within reach, but I don't have one right now. Um, anyway, yeah, the 6Cs work, I think, work really, really well. They're very compact, so they're easy to bring there. Now, if you really have space, then you can do a lot of other things. But the question is, is are you talking about going to an office and setting these up? Or are you talking about building something in the office? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think, I don't know why, but the way I read Douglas's question is, I'm I'm not working at home anymore. I have to work in my office. I still want to look good on Zoom. But what I set up in my cubicle, and I got to say, and, and that may not be what you're saying, Douglas, but that's what I think you're saying. I got to say, uh, I would be so horribly self-conscious if I had to set up a cubicle at my office in a normal office building the way my desk is set up here. I would <laughs> feel like the biggest nerd of all time ever. And I may still be that nerd, but at least I don't have people walking behind me looking at me with you know disgust or shame. But anyway, I don't know what that answer would be. I think Good offices course. just need to be lit better. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you can get some of uh, the Pavo tubes, like Alex was saying, and you might look into getting some uh, uh, controllable RGB WW bulbs, like Fate, F-E-I-T, Electric, make some that are compatible with, uh, compatible with Alexa and Google Home. Uh, and then you can do like I do and just tell it to set the background to a certain color, come on a certain time, or you can set it from a uh, an app on your phone uh, so that uh, during the day, during office work, real office work, you could just set it to white and no one would be the wiser. And then when you come on, you could change your background color to something, uh, you know, 
or purple or blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, let us know when you, if you ask that question again, whether it's a permanent install or a, or a temporary install. Are you showing up at a cubicle and setting something up? Again, that's where the Pavo tubes work really well because they just, what I'd probably do with the Pavo tubes is put a little piece of metal somewhere on a cubicle and just because they're magnetic, I would just snap them to them and turn them on uh, rather than having to think much about it. So, um, see what, think about exactly what you're trying to do there. I do think that the, there's a future for offices that is building spaces that are for individuals to be in, that they can be in virtual meetings so that you can have a hybrid office. And I think that'll become more important when people start asking for companies to evaluate the carbon impact of commuting to their office. And when that carbon impact, when carbon impact for commuting to their offices is included in their, in their report, um, that's going to take all the fun out of having people come to the office. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I was just doing some uh, 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 airline research uh, for my wife uh, the other day, and I used the Google, and I don't normally for air to plane tickets. And if you search like air flight it, between two, it tells cities, you what the carbon impact is. It tells you what the carbon footprint is for that flight, and whether or not you're. 140% of some arbitrary thing or 77% of some arbitrary thing. Oh, you're you're get interesting. As as we we're having a heat wave right now. We'll see if it keeps on going and we're having a lot of of of, of crazy things. As this gets worse, there um, people are going to ask for carbon impact of everything. Like what is the carbon impact of your conference? What is are your convention? What is the 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 carbon impact of your uh, of commuting to your office? What is the car like all of those things are going to start becoming something people start measuring and it's going to take all the fun out of moving pe moving uh, people around. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight, Vancouver, BC. I have disabled virtual backgrounds within my Zoom account. However, it did not make a difference when remote partitionment came, to, came into the meeting. Is there any way on the service side to completely block the use of virtual backgrounds? Bill. I think at, at some point, what I would like to see, and it may be there because I don't do this all that often, though, is a lobby that has what I used to think of as lobby cards. I think that's the eventual solution so that somebody can't get into a meeting without knowing some rules. And one of them might be, you know, in addition to the traditional lobby card, which is no cameras may be used during this presentation or something like that. Just say uh, virtual backgrounds are please no virtual backgrounds. It's a communication problem as anything. I don't know anybody who does it on the server side. I may be woefully ill-informed about that, and there may be some, but I know the problem you're dealing with. It is kind of, when we see somebody come in here with a virtual background, it's like, we've spent so much time trying to make this show look clean by not doing that. And then somebody comes in with a horrible virtual background that has little cutouts of everything and their key is terrible. Just makes you feel bad. Good, Courtney. I may be wrong, but I'm just uh, taking an educated guess here that the virtual backgrounds are done in the client side software. So because that composition, that, uh, uh, you know, cut out and compositing is done before the image goes, is uploaded to Zoom. So uh, it gets messed up before it, it, it travels its way to the server. So I don't think there's anything you can do it other than, as Bill said, you know, if you're using a virtual background, you will not be allowed to join the meeting. Go, Jeff. You haven't specified uh, if this is all within your account. In other words, this is another user. I'm presuming it's not. I'm presuming this is an external from your Zoom account person because I believe you can for your account and any um, 
seat in your account, specify that in the settings uh, on the web. But, um, you know, so one option, I mean, if you really want to enforce that is you can have an extra seat and uh, ask that person to come in on that account and it would thereby prevent them from doing that. Yeah. So uh, I believe that the, my understanding is, is that the reason you can block it for anybody within your account to use virtual backgrounds or blurred backgrounds. You cannot block it for external uh, people because it is seen as a privacy issue. So someone may want to not show where they are, not show their office, not show their home, so on and so forth. And 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 I think that the decision that Zoom has made has been they have the right to to still hide that because they weren't ready for that when they jumped into the meeting. So that's why that that is um, available there. It is, you know, I, I, it's not a there's a lot of things wrong with it. Uh, I, I think that there was a note um, from Laura that, you know, for folks with accessibility issues with uh, low sight, um, that that is, a, it's really a painful thing to look at, you know, so for those, for those backgrounds. And so, uh, so it's, it, it's very difficult. So it's not a, um, it's on many levels, not a great solution. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they're missing out on something for people that are interviewing that are in the witness protection uh program they could have reverse. it blur the full foreground, foreground and leave yeah, the background exactly. sharp how has someone not built that plugin so yeah so that that there's a camera plugin there for ecam waiting to happen which is just blur foreground uh that is would it, be isn't that just called vaseline on the lens no 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 but it should be something you should be able to push it and it should what it should do is it should blur the the, 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 the and then lower your, your lower your voice but but it has to blur the foreground darken it and then blur and then lower your and then you could you could have that be an automatic filter of witness, you just call it witness protection. Um, yeah, we've now exactly. created, we've now created a, uh, a new app. We're waiting for somebody to, uh, to build it. So yeah, I, I personally just use, um, shame and ridicule. <laughs> that's, that's the only, that's the only way to block it. Is that uh, your make, law make, firm? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> law firm of shame and ridicule. <laughs> All right. Next question. LLC. Uh, Khalid Aljumaya, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess this up, and I apologize. Aljumaya, um, I hope I'm close, in Hassa, Saudi Arabia, says, Hi, Alex, what are the OS reg requirements for the upcoming Telestration app? Can it be used with any hardware, or is it limited to M-series devices? I think it's just anything that can run Ventura. I think that's the, that's the limit there, so that we're not going very far back. Uh, next question. Next question is from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Mic capsules tend to become directional as the frequency increases, even Omni. Do you pay attention to this when placing and aiming mics to get the best possible sound? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, yes, most uh, directional mics that use interference tubes like the Sennheisers that use the slots down the side to uh, create the uh, highly directional uh, quality. Uh, those interference tubes are not equal as far as frequency response. So the, if you look at the polar pattern on them, the higher frequencies are fairly narrow, about 12 degrees or so. And then as the frequencies get lower, they broaden out in coverage. So when you're aiming a microphone, you have to make sure that it's dead on. And this happens, you know, I used to train boom operators, you know, because I could tell when they're pointed at the person's mouth and when they're five degrees off either side, because you hear the difference in the high end response of the microphone uh, after a while. And with those, you know, directional microphones that use interference tubes, it's really obvious. And uh, there are some newer microphones that are, are more even in their spread. Uh, they don't use the interference tube, but they use other, other means of achieving directionality that doesn't offset the frequency response according to the, uh, 
the off-axis uh, reception, and they're a little smoother so that you can make more mistakes with mic aiming, uh, and they're a little more forgiving. Uh, so you don't, it's not near as obvious that the person has turned off mic or the microphone has turned off person. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I agree with all of that. I will say that the it's useful also to think of the inverse of this, which means that since higher ends are more directional, you can infer that lower ends are less directional, which is why things like that guy with the hot rod in the neighborhood who's driving by is virtually impossible for any type of mic to avoid. That low frequency noise rumbles, uh, you know, passing uh, public transit and things like that are almost impossible to use a microphone to try to get out of your signal chain, you really have to do filtering because it just doesn't work that way. Low frequency is pretty omni always. Go ahead, Jeff. It, it is fascinating, by the way, uh, just as a quick aside, I mean, this this is the 416 without the foam, and it's amazing. When I'm normally doing voiceover, not on camera, it, it's almost directly in front of me. It would completely block me out for on camera. And it's amazing because this is, uh, I, I measure it, it's still pointing at my mouth. It's still the exact distance from my mouth. But whether it's just this far off at an angle or directly in front of me does make a difference. And you can hear it, and especially other things that this does with plosives and, and outside sound, it's, it's fascinating. And a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout this hour and next hour. So if you've got questions, go ahead and throw them into Makana. Uh, general questions for the first hour and um, specific questions uh, for our second hour. We're talking about acoustic treatment. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those in. And you can vote on those questions um, and, and uh, let us know what order you'd like us to ask them. Bill, what do we have next? Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, up next. And he asks, compare the performance of the Wave XLR, Focusrite Scarlet, Euphoria, Lewitt Connect 6, which is best for streamers and which is best for musicians and which has the best gain and the best interface? I don't know if all of us have have used all of those, so I'm not sure if, if that would, you know, and again, a, a, a large percentage of us are actually using something different. <laughs> so, so I don't, you know, that specifically, uh, whether it's a mix pre three or, or, uh, you know, um, universal audio or other things like that. So uh, I'm not sure if we have a good answer for that. I, I can tell you that the scarlet has left lots of scars for me. <laughs> so I would, that's all I can say about that's the only one that I have uh, direct familiarity with. And it was um, I would I would not recommend it. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach here on the panel to live stream a two to four person panel in Dolby Atmos. What might a smaller scale hardware and or software chain look like? And Jeff, you want to um, you want to stream it uh, to where? Well, that's a good question, and um, so you're just trying to figure it out in general. Yeah, yeah, I okay, mean, yeah. So, so there's destination a aside. Yeah. So there's there is surround, and then there is Atmos, and so Atmos is a little bit more complicated to to support. So um, surround, you can do five point one to YouTube. I think it's available to all channels. We have it available on our channel. I'm not sure if it's available to all YouTube channels, but they've been rolling it out. Um, so you have um, uh, 5.1. So you can basically, you, you can bind six channels to a, you, you basically embed the six channels and typically it's uh, left, right, center, uh, left surround, right surround, um, or left, right, center, LFE, which is your base, and then left surrounds and right surround. And so you'll, you'll embed those into that. 
Um, and then uh, once it gets to YouTube, you have to define that as 5.1. And typically, you're going to have to have something that streams that. Um, the easiest way to do that is typically, like we, in our elemental link, we can put into up to eight channels. And so we can embed it into that, get it into uh, YouTube, or get it into AWS. And then from AWS, we can use that to send it and define it as a 5.1 stream um, as it goes in. Now, remember that you're going to have to use there, you'll have to use an L HLS delivery, which is something that YouTube can do, um, but it can't do RTMP because RTMP is stereo only. And so it's just two channels. And so you have to deliver that as an HLS segment. Segment, And in AWS, it's a little tricky. You have to, um, if, if you really want to do this, you have to ping me and I'll send you the JSON for it because it's it's not, the way Elemental handles the the key is different than the way that YouTube handles the key and they don't agree on it. No one will change it. So anyway, so you have to just know how to how to change the key a little bit to make that work. And, and, and maybe I, I, I should have but, phrased this differently thinking, even forward thinking, but I'm thinking right. specifically about with Atmos, live mixing and, right. and defining where well, the, all those yeah. objects are and, and yeah. everything else. Well, the, the main thing is, is that from the stream, I was going to say the last thing I was going to say, if you want to actually stream in Atmos, you can. But what you have to do is you need to stream it. You're going to embed up to 16 channels, you know, for Atmos. It could be 714 or 916 or 514. You can embed those into into it, and you're just embedding them as as beds. And then you define them as Atmos in the encoder. So that's how that works. As far as the creative side of this, you know, we I don't know. We're still thinking about how much people want to hear people moving around. Um, it might work as long as it fits with the screen, but it would literally only be leaning a little bit one way or the other. What we're really more interested in is environmental sound. So if I'm, you know, that's what we're playing with. You're seeing us do at conferences, um, you know, and testing is the idea that I can send a surround. Um, I can use an ambisonic mic and grab a lot of surround, um, uh, a lot of the area and make you feel more like you're there. So I think that that's where that gets real interesting is being able to deliver something that you feel the atmosphere. And the way we're using it in the conferences is that we have SM50, SM58s with wireless that are have a lot of off-axis rejection. So now we're not getting a lot of everything around us. By doing that, we're able to have a situation where we can attenuate how much the atmosphere you know, builds up around you. So if there's a lot of atmosphere, if, if we want to have a lot of atmosphere, we can ring it, bring it up. If we want to bring the mics further forward, we can, because we're sending the mics right down the center channel and the atmosphere is being added, but the atmosphere can be attenuated up and down to give you just the right, you know, quote unquote, right amount of feel. And when we go to Seagraph, you'll see us push that a lot harder. Um, you know, so we're, we're going to be testing it this week, next week, the week, the week after to kind of tune some of those things uh, up. And um, and then when we get to Seagraph, we, we're going to try to stream at least a half an hour a day just with that idea of, of, of trying to figure figure that out. We did it pretty successfully at NAB, um, and we'll do more of it then. So, But that's the other thing that we're thinking about is uh, interpretation coming into a surround channel. Um, so uh, you'll probably see us experiment with that later this summer. Uh, I think that it's a great place to do it where you can kind of whisper into someone's ear uh, while they're, you know, so you can, the cool thing about it is, is that, the main show is going down the center channel. So you still feel the speaker speaking in their own language, not this kind of broken up, I'm trying to speak English. They're just speaking in their own language. Um, and uh, But you have someone telling you what they're saying, but you don't have to look down at captions all the time. So those are the, you know, there's a couple things there that I'm kind of interested in. So we'll... And I, I know we've, we've talked about it before. Uh, I'm one of the folks that does like, uh, for instance, what Clubhouse does to 
spatially orient just a little bit. You know, I don't want the extreme one person all the way here, but just a little bit of yep. spatial orientation of where speakers are. It, so I know it's this person versus that person speaking. It works as long as it stays consistent. So, for instance, Dolby has a situation with, uh, what is it, um, blue jeans where they do that. But the problem is it's constantly moving and it's not consistent with that person. And it's super disoriented. At first, it's cool. You're like, oh, this is cool. And then you're like, oh, how do I turn this off? You know, because it's not... It's it's not lining up with what I'm seeing. So this person that's on this side is showing is is coming through this speaker. Doesn't it doesn't make any sense? Um, next question. Ros McNulty is up next from Vancouver, Canada. Should I get a new external HD hard hard disk versus my older Lacie to store my 360 degree photos? Not for backup, but to save in one place. I use Google Photos, but I want the photos in high quality together so I can edit and post elsewhere. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. You know, what I did is I have a NAS that's on my network, uh, which I save to, and I've written little scripts to save my all my files that change daily or, you know, photo files, et cetera, to sync them up. But a, a better, but what I went to recently is I got, uh, sorry, I got a uh, NVMe uh, external uh, drive. Actually, it's just a caddy. In a second here, I'll be able to show you. Let's see. There. Um that these you can get them for around uh, twelve bucks uh, here on uh, on the Amazons, and uh, then into that you put a you go out and find you a nice four terabyte uh, NVMe drive that are on sale today for one hundred and fifty nine bucks at Best Buy because they're competing against uh, Amazon's uh, Prime Day. Uh, so that way you can have four terabytes. It's uh, USB 3.1, so it's 10 gigabits per second interface into a USB 3 connector. It's portable. It's tiny. You can slip it in your laptop case. You can take it and you can plug it into any PC or Mac and uh, read it and exchange data at a high rate. And I just leave one of those plugged into my laptop all the time and set uh, uh I use the same, uh, the same routines to copy and synchronize folders between the stuff on my laptop and the NAS, and I use that to synchronize the stuff on my laptop and that external NVMe. And the NVMe beats the NAS by about, you know, 150 to one. It does it so fast. And that way you keep all your 360 degree photos in one place and they'll still be portable and they'll be backed up and you won't have to deal with spinning drive and power supplies and all that stuff because it runs off the USB 3 connection. Code Bill. Yeah, I took this as something about archiving. And for archiving, um, I still use spinning drives just because the price, the the dollars per gigabyte, terabyte now, um, just make them really efficient for that. One of the things I learned back in the old days, though, was I don't buy them out of the same batch. I would typically buy one. I, I might go to Costco or I might, if it was really important stuff, go to OWC and one of the vendors who are known for really high quality engineering. And then I would wait a while back in the old days when I was doing it to buy my second drive and then mirror those two. So there was always a redundancy in storage because this is an archive. And if it's important stuff, I wanted to make sure to go. And I had one experience a long time ago with buying two IBM desk stars and they both came out of the same batch and they both failed uh, within a reasonable period of time. Everybody is going to these NVMEs. This is uh, the Envoy Express from OWC, and it's exactly what Courtney was describing. You put a, a set of chips in them, and so you can always pull out those chips and put higher density ones later, and they're super fast. This one's Thunderbolt, I think, and it, it that's a better way now. But for archive, in terms of pure cost efficiency, I'd mirror two drives 
and uh, use one and then make sure the other one. It, the best thing is off-site if you're archiving for sure and you want to keep these totally safe. Yeah, the uh, I think it would just depend on how much storage you need and what kind of speeds you want. Um, I'm really happy with the OWC, their little um, NVMe RAID uh, that, that Chris got me into, and now I have a couple, <laughs> you know, so a couple, more than a couple of them um, laying around. And um, you can put two terabyte, four terabyte, so on and so forth. But you could put four, four terabytes in there, you're going to have a 16 terabyte RAID. Um, and that is really fast. And so um, it just depends on how much, if you need four terabytes, then just get up, as, as Courtney said, and I build them, I build this, I mean, you have to decide how crafty you want to be, but I, I build my little, little, little drives with four terabytes in them. Um, uh, but uh, you can, you can also just buy them. Um, next question. Bobby Rafferty in Florida says, does anyone have any idea or educated Pre- premonition about when DaVinci Resolve 18.5 will be out of beta. I think it'll be one week before 18.6 comes into beta. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's my that's my only premonition. Uh, so yeah, so I, that, that's all I got to say. Uh, next question. <laughs> uh, Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. Is anybody that's on the macOS Sonoma Dev Beta had any audio issues? Too soon. Beta three was released yesterday. My time. Uh, I wouldn't do anything mission critical with it. It's still pretty. I'm talking to folks that are using Sonoma. There's still a lot of uh, sharp edges there. So be be you know if, if you want to play with it, if you've got a computer that you can noodle with, uh, then go ahead and do that. But uh, be careful. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was on a Zoom call yesterday with Security Officer Jack, and he made some sort of hand gesture. He was like, "Yeah, it was really great." And all of a sudden, all these bal- it was a balloon drop in his frame on Zoom. It is the and there's a. There's a hand gesture that'll cause, and it was because he was on Sonoma, and because oh, it's no, got the effects built into the into the camera. I don't know yeah. what it was, but it yeah. was built into Sonoma. It's built into the Sonoma into the webcam. So, so he he's not using his <laughs> webcam. He's using an external camera, mm-hmm. and. I believe Nigel was as well, and Nigel was on the beta of Sonoma, and those guys were sitting there doing all these hand gestures and stuff. And I'm like, man, I can't, man, I don't, man, mind over kids, do it. the kids love this, evidently. The kids love this stuff, but it yeah. was so goofy. You know, when Apple, because when Jack Apple, didn't know it was going to happen, he and I was like, where'd those balloons come from? He goes, I don't about, know. It's like talk about surprise and maybe delight. Um, yeah. So, so, <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. It's actually a feature in Zoom, so you can check it, and Chris can turn it on right now. And, and, I mean, the reason I made sure I didn't enable it is for exactly that, because I'll forget it, and I'll be in the worst possible setting scenario, something really sad or bad news, and, I, you know, it's like this, and then balloons and confetti are dropping, so... That's my first guess is that's what uh, he just had it enabled. I think it might even be enabled by default. So uh, I think so. Uh, I, I, I mean, tell me where it is, but I don't think that's the answer, Jeff. I think I, this was a Sonoma specific problem. Anyway, yeah, it's interesting um, you, because Apple has a lot of those effects. Um, it When we saw Apple add all these effects and the emojis and they, they spend a lot of energy on this, I think a lot of people thought, well, why is Apple doing this? This is silly. Uh, right now, I think the number is 80% of kids under 18 are 82. on an iPhone. 82. On an iPhone. I read it the other day. 82. 82%? Yeah, are on an iPhone. Like that. So, you know, like that's a that that's a terrifying number if you're not 
if you're not in an I, in the iOS uh, uh, number, because that it's not a number that's going to change. It's just going to keep rippling up, uh, Bill. Well, I'm just sitting here thinking, so it was what, three years ago, we had the lawyer under COVID showing up as a cat in his deposition. This year, we've got balloons dropping because you made two. Is the computer industry progressing or regressing? I'm just asking. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's for the kids. Uh, next question. Um, Tommy Shant, St. Paul, Minnesota. Where is a good spot to enhance my network design skills for an AV production? And he's considering Dante, NDI, and all of these computers. I'm overwhelmed, he notes. We sympathize. I think that the first thing to do is to take the Dante training. So, um, and, I, and I'm going to go back and look at it. I think there's a webinar August 1st, and I'm seriously considering taking it and just to I've taken it a long time ago, but I think I'm thinking of taking it again and maybe we'll all take it as a group. It kind of, might, might be kind of fun. So um, so let's let's take a look at that. But I think there's an Audinate. Audinate does, and it, it's not just about Dante. It's about networking. And and uh, it, it'd be probably the, the first thing to do to get to get figure that out. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand says, what's the best approach for letting someone know, high profile or otherwise, that they need to upgrade their audio and video equipment? Courtesy of Office Hours, I got the last Brio in Auckland, New Zealand at the because uh, of CV-19 and a decent mic spec by Mr. Fairweathers. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, can't hear you, Jeff. Are you there? Oh, sorry, forgot actually that I uh, raised on this, qu- on this question. You know, my, in, in my experience, the best way to demonstrate the need for something is to demonstrate the difference. So take that person's audio video and then take your best possible example of what a really good version of that looks like and play the two together where the difference is really obvious. And, and that usually does it. Yeah, I don't usually say things to high profile folks. I just I just uh, show up and, and again, as Jeff said, having yours look really good makes a big difference and have they'll see oftentimes see the difference. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas says, how do you get your logo on a foam microphone sock? Go ahead, Bill. There are vendors who will do that for you. I've typically used Marker Tech in the past, but there are others who are specialty and they will print some of them silkscreen, some of them apply a thing kind of like an applique that they can create and bond to the to the foam whim screen. But uh, you might try Marker Tech as one of your first stops, but just also look on custom microphone logos and you will find all sorts of uh vendors for them the other typical way is a little plastic sleeve i thought i had one near me over here but either a square or a triangle that you can actually laser print uh, something on sticky paper and post that and it can look really nice so there's a lot of a lot of vendors who do it there's one vendor that almost the entire like like audio implements is what everybody uses for their in-ears and broadcast there's one vendor that does almost all of these and it's impactpbs.com uh, so impactpbs.com is the place that you get these. <laughs> and they have mic flags. They have uh, they have the windscreens. They have everything. They know how to do it. They'll send it to you. Um, they'll send it to you in days. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it's not particularly expensive. Um, and we've used them for many shows. <laughs> so I would highly recommend uh, using them. Their, their customer service is great, too. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael, could the Aperture MC Pro be a solid monitor top or monitor adjacent lighting choice for a permanent home office setup, or would the Pavo tubes still be what you'd want? And he's got a link there to the Aperture website. And we're going to have to look very 
slowly here. So, so the, uh, I'm not sure what, what, which one he's talking about there. Um, these are, you know, so yeah, these are the little ones. These are the MC pros. These are tiny, uh, tiny little lights. Uh, I would not, if I was going to choose between these lights and the, um, and the Pavo tubes, I definitely choose the Pavo tubes. They're a larger light source, uh, than, than these, the, these little squares, in my opinion, are too sourcey. And so I don't, I don't use them for, for, um, that kind of lighting. Go ahead, Chris. As you know, Alex, lighting is very important super important to do good video. I don't want to talk about lighting. Did you know that the that the Fenwick Framer is built into Zoom now? Uh, They've renamed it. They call yeah. it the OH Framer. They Where is it? Signature. It's under... I, I don't have it in mine. I just checked. Where is it? It's right here. It's in effects? It's in video filters right here. Look, it's called the OH Framer. Hold on. That's pretty awesome. Go into... It's not Hold mine. On. Hold on. Maybe I... What version are you on? Uh, uh, come on. You're asking the tough questions. Hold on. Uh, you, you added that manually. No, because no, I wouldn't have... I didn't... Because he would have named it Fenwick. I would have <laughs> called it my awesome framer, ha, 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 dash underscore awesome. I don't, I don't see it. <laughs> Is what it I would have called video, it. It's not video backgrounds. It's under video filters. It's under video filters. Uh, I, I I don't see it. I, it must be an update. I, I'll have to run the update. Let me check. I can't. I, I can't find the. Hold oh wait, on. I'm on five fifteen two. Hold on, I'm on. I'm sorry to hijack your question, Douglas Carmichael. But so it must be this brand was new. Super important. I know. I know exactly. <laughs> um, I'm on uh, five uh, fifteen zero four five fifteen. Oh, I'm on. I have. And see, look, I just turned it on. ten. So I, I'm going to have to. That's pretty awesome. So we'll have Congratulations. to. Congratulations. Everyone's got to update. Well, well f number one, uh, I'm not getting paid enough. Number two, they took my signature off of it. Number three, they <laughs> named it wrong. <laughs> but other than this that. This is a trifecta <laughs> of insult, Mr. Carluccio. <laughs> I so, am upset. Oh, my gosh. What so are those vertical upset. hash marks that you just had on? What do they, what do they indicate? There was uh, uh, when you had that overlay on there. They square, had this square, square frame. Well, it's a square framing in the center. Okay, got it. Interesting. That's funny. The one third lines are nice, and the front. This looks so familiar. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the funny thing is, is that we've we've started to make it small. Like my head is smaller in that frame than. There's uh, so much. To, let's talk. Can we take just a moment to talk about this, Alex? We we. That's I'm getting big. pressure by the rogue back. Uh, 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 Back room, whatever you cut, backstage people to change it. They're saying make it smaller, make it smaller. I sent it to I, you that I, way too. I, I said, for I your, say I serve at the pleasure of the president of Office Hours. That's you. Uh, I sent you a suggestion. I said, here's a suggested update. No, I never got that. You ignored, you ignored it. I never got it. Okay, I'll send it again. Do, don't send it by email. You know, I don't read email. No, I think I texted it to you. <laughs> All right, I will send it again. Because right, I, let's I, talk about lighting. Can we talk, about, talk lighting? about lighting? Let's go back to lighting. I'm sorry I hijacked this question, but this is what happens. Frankly, <laughs> this was made way more interesting than Pavo tubes. 
So yeah, so the the main thing is is that um, the I, I would look. We've used uh, LumaPad, uh, the that the the Nanlite LumaPad twenty fives as well, and some of the larger ones, and those those have worked really you know worked better. I still like the pad. We tended to move to all the Pavo tubes was was really where we found two of those worked really well because they're really easy to set up and they have batteries in them, so they they can last the whole show uh, if they lose power. So um, and they've got a lot more color control. A lot of these other ones, but again the the small square is pretty sourcey, so I would I would probably recommend against it. Still time for a couple more questions, so if you've got questions, go ahead and throw those questions in for the first hour or the second hour, um, if you're if you're interested there, um, and uh, and go ahead and vote on those questions to let us know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Uh, let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas says the Actors Union, SAG, or the Screen Actors Guild, and AFTRA is part of that now, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, is joining the writer's strike. What will be the impact on new productions? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I don't think they've joined just yet uh, because the, uh, they've still got till midnight tonight uh, to work out something. They have agreed to federal a, a uh, independent mediator to come in and mediate the differences between the PTP and the Screen Actors Guild. So there's still hope that the mediator can help them get together on the same page or resolve their differences by uh, midnight tonight. Uh, so we'll see. Um, <clears throat> the effect isn't going to change much because the writer's strike has pretty much put all production off, most production off that uses any kind of scripted, you know, uh, storyline. So, you know, interview shows, news shows, those can still go on, but anything that requires scripted dialogue, pretty much because people are observing the, uh, the picket lines out in front of the studios, pretty much shuts down most production, even those that have uh, scripts that were finished before the Writers Guild strike was started. So, uh, it's not going to make a, a lot of impact. It may just extend the length of time uh, that the strike will last. But once the negotiations are over or off the table or they call off negotiations with SAG, then Writers Guild can come back to the table to try and renegotiate or come to a consensus with the producer. So they might be able to settle uh, their situation. Uh, and if uh, SAG is threatening to strike or not renewing their contract the producers may feel a little more impetus to uh, come to a settle or come to an agreement you know good good bill yeah it's been interesting to me this strike hasn't affected me directly but i'm now starting to see some months into it uh i just got a bunch of communications from comic-con the big pop culture juggernaut that'll happen in two weeks in san diego here and uh it's been gutted in terms of presentations by the major studios because they are paying attention to the, the the strike and do not want to get into picket line processes there and things like that. And I, it caused me to think about the long prep. It's not long tail. It's the opposite. The long lead that all motion pictures go through. We are not seeing the dearth of content right now because these things have been in production for two or three years. So we will see new movies coming out now. But in a year or a year and a half, there will be a fallow period where all these productions that are on hold right now because of the strikes just will not be there. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes the landscape, if it does, of people's entertainment choices when there's just no real interesting new movies coming out for months when the results of this hit. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Let me give you an alternate scenario, which is there is 
a big dearth of entertainment that doesn't need either one, and that's reality shows. So get ready for more Housewives of Topeka, Kansas. I mean, that's what happened, you know, a few years ago. We, we, I mean, there was 15, reality shows, but there was this ago. huge flood. Yeah, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And remember, this is coming on kind of as a, as a double whammy coming off of the COVID a pandemic where everything was shut down for like two years. Uh, then all of a sudden after that, uh, you know, we came out from under the COVID restrictions. A lot of stuff went back into production. So there was a sudden influx of production and then the writer's strike hit. So there wasn't a lot of stuff in the pipeline to begin with because of COVID. And now because of the writer's strike that's been going on for several months now, uh, the pilots are not in production. When the pilots don't go into production for the new television season, then they can't go to the upfronts. They can't decide what programs they're going to put into production and sell. So it just kind of throws the whole uh, marketplace, the whole pipeline back a year, you know, just by knocking out a few months there during pilot season, it can set television back about a year. And so only the contemporary, once they settle the strikes, only the contemporary programs, the programs that are written on a daily basis, like, uh, you know, the late night talk shows, et cetera, will, will come back into production immediately. Everything else is going to be pushed back to the end of the pipeline. And so there's going to be a long delay before media stuff gets out. We're going to be plagued, like was said by Jeff Cohen, with a lot of reality shows and unscripted television, you know. More Kardashians, all your fishing, yeah. fishing programs um, or social media based programs. I think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, the problem for f the filmmakers, the problem for theaters, and the problem for live TV is that the primary complaint are the streamers, right? Like getting, you know, the, the actors and the writers want to get residuals off of the streamers. The problem for them is that the streamers can go a long time. You know, they don't, like I'm watching, I haven't watched a new show and I don't know how long. Like I, I know that there's new shows coming out, eventually I'll get to them. But I'm watching right now, I'm watching a show from 2018. Um, and the streamers have an enormous catalog and it's not time-based um, and they can go for a very long time. And I think that this is going to be a problem is that the writers and the SAG actors in the past have had time, exactly what Courtney's had, time on their side because you got to get movies out, you got to get a schedule out. But they're they're playing chicken with someone that's got like a giant Mack truck and they're, they're like in a little motorcycle like, and they're just like, we're just going to play chicken with you. And, and I think that the streamers are just going to sit there and just go, okay, well, we'll just wait because um, they've already, there's already been rumors that the, the, that some of the folks from the streaming companies have said, we're just going to wait until writers start losing their houses. Like, you know, like, like they're not, they don't think that they have to, they don't think that they have to make the change um, because they, their library is so deep that they don't need to, people are not going to unsubscribe. There's so much back catalog that people haven't seen yet. They'll just start digging into that because it's, it's not, again, it, it's not advertising based. It's not putting seats, you know, people into seats. It's a very different. So the, the primary complaint that they have is against someone who can last for probably a year or two. Like, you know, like literally they can just, the, the streamers can last for a year or two and the writers cannot, you know, and the SAG actors cannot. So I think that they've bitten off more than they can chew. Um, we'll see. I will say that for folks who do live, it's good, it's good business to be in right now. <laughs> like, you know, it will be next year uh, because live isn't scripted. Uh, go ahead, Bill. 
I'm just worried about migration, though, because there's a lot of global production facilities now are turning out really good things. There's tons coming out of the Pacific Rim. There's tons coming out of England and places like that that do not have a rider strike. So I'm wondering if the long-term effect of this is going to be to hollow out the talent pool of riders in America and a lot of that production just because they don't have to cross picket lines will just go elsewhere and we'll still instead of america being one of the centers of movie culture that will get de-emphasized and these other big production operations i mean the india production and ecosystem is gigantic over there and if you've looked in the back alleys of netflix or any of these things there's a lot of bollywood productions there's a Mm. lot of um, korean rim productions It'll just be interesting. It's it's a really complicated problem, you know, and and I think that it's it's not going to end anytime soon. Um, But I wouldn't want to be a theater owner right now. (laughs) So so anyway, uh, next question. Next one comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Explain the quad core processor limitation in Zoom for 1080p and what is a low cost solution? I think the lowest cost solution is a Mac Mini. Um, probably used Mac Mini at three ninety nine or four ninety nine. I think that once you go below that, the, there's a the limitation is mostly that there are many different configurations for things that let with less than a quad core. And rather than trying to figure out which ones are which, Zoom just said, "Well, if you don't have quad core, we're not going to support it. We're, we're you know we're not going to." Um, so I think that it's just easier for them to give a blanket, um, even though some of the computers are capable of doing 1080p. Uh, it's it's simpler to not do that. So I think that that's probably the decision process there. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Is there any difference between streaming to Facebook versus YouTube? Uh, if I test with a YouTube stream key for a few hours, are there any gotchas when switching to Facebook? Uh, well, you'd want to test in Facebook for a couple hours too. You want to make sure that the ingests are working and everything else is is um, doing what it should do. So I wouldn't immediately switch over and think that it's going to work. So I would stream to YouTube. Anything that you're going to stream to, you can stream to a... There's a preview way to do that in Facebook. I have to admit, I haven't streamed to Facebook for a while. So I'm not... I can't remember exactly what the mechanism is. I have lots of Facebook accounts. <laughs> the reason I do that is because uh, I have... Um, uh, I would use those Facebook accounts... Um, to, uh, um, I would use those Facebook accounts to test my, my streams, um, often. So, so I think that that's uh, what you may want to consider there, but I would definitely not assume that just because it's streaming well to YouTube, that it's going to stream well to Facebook. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael says the NBA bubble used Microsoft teams to bring the audience into the game. How would they have gotten the isolated feeds out of teams without a tool like zoom ISO? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't think they have to because an audience usually isn't a two-way type of uh, interaction that, you know, you can hear them maybe cheering or something, but they don't have to be isolated and put up an individual audience member. So they can just take them as a group and put them up on a video wall just to see audience reaction. So I don't think it's necessary to have them split out uh, with something like Zoom ISO. Go ahead, John. Teams has an SDK, so that it allows you to grab individual frames just like Zoom does. I haven't seen any third-party software development for it. They do have the methodologies to access that that media. Yep. Yeah, so we'll, we'll have to see how that works. Uh, we got um, a... Uh... A uh, good second hour. I mean, good second hour coming up here in just a minute. A uh, cu- couple announcements. HDR objective color metrics will be tomorrow, and you will want to be here. Uh, Chris Seeger from uh, the NBC Universal's director. He's the director of advanced content production. Um, so, and he is 
the guy <laughs> to talk about this. Also, of course, Michael Dra uh, Drazen, as well as Jim Toten are going to be on the show. This is, I mean, an incredible brain trust uh, to talk to about HDR. We're super excited to have them, and they're going to be back here um, uh, to, uh, next, uh, or they're going to be back here tomorrow uh, to answer your questions, talk about HDR, answer your questions about HDR, and, uh, and kind of walk through that. So pretty excited about that. Uh, Friday, we're going to have a show and tell. Um, so we're um, the uh, uh, we're going to be talking just about our own productions and, and answering your questions and showing a little behind the scenes. Um, and uh, finally, on Saturday, audio description with Joel Snyder, uh, and he is just one of the key people, one of the expert, world experts in audio description, and he will be talking about audio description and uh, and also uh, answering your questions about it. So make sure to tune in for those. Now we're going to go ahead and jump into the second hour. And we're starting the second hour uh, here, and we have Rich Mathai uh, from, the, he's the national sales manager from ProSoCoustic. Rich, can you hear us okay? Good morning. Yes, I can. How are you today? Fantastic. Good, good, to, good to have you here. Tell us a little bit about ProSoCoustic. Yeah, so thanks again for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk to you guys today. Uh, ProSoCoustic, we like to refer to as a premium acoustic treatment manufacturer. Um, we kind of started... Uh, with a collaboration from some experts and across different industries from engineering to logistics to audio, all of which had a passion for audio. Um, and so they wanted to create a better product than what was out there. And so that's kind of where we, we come from and we've grown and we do a lot of custom work on top of that as well. Cause there's no one treatment solution for everybody. Right. So, where, where, where are you based? Um, our sales office is based in Nashville, Tennessee, and we manufacture everything in Canton, Ohio. Oh, nice. Very good. Yeah, I checked out your website before the show. Uh, it's really impressive. A lot of us, you know, like I, I'm in a small tent of moving blankets. Like it's the only part of you that isn't moving blankets is behind me here. Sure. But and then and then when I've gone, you know, I've gotten a lot of acoustic foam, you know, that I put on on walls and so on and so forth. And and when I, I have to admit that when I when I went to your website and looked at it, I was like, oh, this would <laughs> this, this would look really nice. <laughs> this would look really nice in my head. You know. So Thank when you. Yeah. you know the uh, where what do you emphasize as you start to build these out? Yeah. So our, our first focus is um, always the acoustics side of things. You know, um, we can pretty things up, but first and foremost, we wanted to make something that um, is the a, a better product or a more absorbent product uh, than what was typically out there. Um, and then also add some other features and functionalities to it to make it more versatile. Uh, and then on top of that, lastly, we added the the aesthetic side of it. So, I mean, it looks good on its own, but. And what are the keys to making something that if you want foam, that's really going, I mean, not foam, but if you want an acoustic treatment, that's really going to work, what are the key aspects of making that actually successful? Yeah. So that's a good question. And there are a lot of factors that go into that, uh, to, you know, starting with the space itself, the size of it, the shape of it, um, and where your sound sources, and then of course, what your use is for. Once you get all of that figured out, uh, then you can kind of choose, there are several different materials insulation wise, um, for absorbing energy. Um, and you can choose which one you want to use, uh, and then that'll kind of determine or help determine how much of it you need as well. 
Um, there is some expertise as far as, you know, detailed placement and how to, where to put things. But there are also some basic standards out there that make it easy for the average Joe to, to, to improve their room as well um, with the treatment. So we look at those, those aspects, the space, the size, use case. We only use one insulation material. We use rock wool. You mentioned foam. Um, and then, yeah, we have a design team that'll spec that out. Uh, and do for, people do people send you pictures, measurements? How do the, how does how do you see you? Because you're in Nashville, you're in Nashville, is correct. that right? Correct. And you have in Canton's building these building these, and these are custom for each room, or I guess you have sets or custom, right? We we have both. We have sets that are easily purchased online, you know, retail, click and buy kind of thing. Most of our acoustic jobs are larger, so they do involve some um, design time to it. And for those, yeah, they're usually built to order uh, as much as I'd like to have a weird increment panel just sitting on the shelf all the time. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, so someone sends you, this is a, a bunch yep. of pictures, here are some measurements, and then you recommend like, this is what we would do to that to make it... Um, it Exactly. So yeah, we ask for pictures and dimensions of the space and then a little information about what it's used for because, you know, a mixing studio versus a conference room are going to have different needs uh, at the end of the day. And you're probably going to want more treatment and something uh, heavier used like a mixing studio versus we would we would really prefer more treatment on the conference rooms ourselves <laughs> right well yeah that's fair <laughs> we do a lot of those we do a lot more conference rooms than uh studios for sure have you seen have you seen any any kind of uptick in conference rooms post covid a hundred percent um I, even from the beginning of covid you know the model switched from going out and doing stuff to everything being at home uh and then everybody realized that their bedrooms don't sound as good as uh their office studios did. Well, so. <laughs> we, we, we were working with a government agency in the, in Europe and they had just finished their big, this big like government uh, round table conference room at a big facility. And they started talking to us, you know, they, they were really excited. Like we can jump. It was a, there was a huge conference then we were managing all the people that were coming in and, sure. and they, and they came in and we said, I'm sorry, we just can't hear what you're saying. You know, like we can't hear cause it was so echoey. It was curved. It was a big curved. Room. Oh yeah. And so we were like, I can't, I can't, I can't hear what you're saying. And they're like, well, we use this all the time. I'm like, have you sat on the other side ever? <laughs> and there, and there was this long silence and they realized they had spent millions of dollars on something that no one could hear remotely. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah, so, do, so sure. do you see the, comp, are, did people come to that realization, not only for their homes, but for uh, their, their actual conference rooms, realizing their conference rooms were almost useless? They do. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, you know, our biggest hurdle uh, or challenge isn't really the marketing aspect so much as just the education. Um, people don't understand that uh, acoustic treatment is needed. You know, it's a lot of fun to go out and buy some new piece of electronic equipment. Uh, it's not always the most exciting purchase to make to make a, a you know, buy acoustic treatment. Um, but right. it really helps. <laughs> Oh, it's, it makes a huge, well, I mean, again, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who's ruined my room right? <laughs> to, to, to have, to have, uh, to have, to make sure, because like this mic, and this is a good example for the mic that I'm using right now is a large diaphragm. It's unusable without that. Like it literally, yeah. I can't even turn it on um, and have it be useful without, without the treatment. And a lot of times when people ask us like, what microphone should I, should I get? Oftentimes our first response is, what does your room sound like? You know, like, yeah. you know, it's, you know, because the, the different mics are going to be sensitive to different things. How long from the time really? someone contacts you, how long do, does it, do, does it end up being that they, they get the acoustic tiles that they need? Uh, as far as them making the decision or us. Or the turnaround, just the turnaround of making yeah. them and sending to them. 
Um, yeah, so turnaround of, of making them is usually, you know, like our kits, like I said, that are available online, those all ship within three days of, of right. being ordered. Larger jobs, um, three to four weeks, four weeks is our max, and that's that's a good load of panels uh, being built with a long line of other ob, uh, projects in front of it kind of thing. Yeah, so and, we're and pretty you, quick about it. And do you, do, you, do you expect them to install it, or do you have local partners that, that do the installations? That's a great question. And the answer is yes to both of them, to be honest with you. You know, the retail retail side of things, we wanted our panels to be super easy to install for anybody to be able to do it. Um, but yeah, most of our larger jobs are done through our integrator partners across the, the country. And what does it take to install these these kinds of things? Is it, is it a, is it a yeah. you know, a, you know, it's everything from, I mean, staples to, to, to hooks to glue to what, what do you, what do you use typically or what do you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said, there are a lot of different flavors. What we use are Z-Clips, um, and I have a panel here I can show you. It's just a single 18-inch aluminum bar. Right. Um, and the holes are already, one of the features in our panels is the holes are already in the panel with machine screws, so there's no, like, impaling or guesswork or alignment uh, for hours. And then on the wall side, it's the exact same thing. So if you have a bubble level, which there's an app on your phone for that, Right. Um, As long as you get that level, you can't go wrong. Uh, We also ship all of our panels with a template uh, that is the size of the panel. It's a piece of paper, has the holes uh, for the panel and the wall. So you can put it where the panel is going to go and it tells you exactly where to go. And how do do you screw it in? Do you take the front, the, the soft part off the front and then install the back? Or is it, how does it, when you said there are machine screws on the back, how does the, how does that go in? French cleat. Uh, no, it is. No, so there's, oh, okay. it's, it's a little hard to see, but there's a screw on either side. And like I said, there are holes in the panel. So the clips have holes in it, right? And you just put the screw in the place and screw it in. So the machine oh, screw okay. inserts are on the inside of the panel, but you don't have to take it apart to do that. It's just right there for you to do on the backside. That's great. Um, the standardized placement of that hole or all those holes allows you to, you know, mark your line on the wall and everything's just repeated at the same time. Or it's a standard screw size, so you can use eye bolts uh, and suspend it as a cloud from the ceiling. Oh, yeah. Um, or we also make feet um, that fit all of the, the the panels with, you know, standard placement so they can be freestanding gobos as well. So that's part of uh, some of the features we wanted to include in our premium panels is the flexibility and versatility of of use without damaging the panel at any time. One of the things I, I, I thought was really cool, I was looking at the website, is that you print on the fronts as well, right? So it's not just that. I was like, oh, that's right? awesome. Absolutely. So they look like a painting. They look like a painting that's on the wall, but it's actually an acoustic foam. What resolution do, does the print work at? What's the line screen? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I, we ask for a minimum of 300 dpi you know right. and we're printing on a two foot by two foot or two foot by four foot panel so uh it kind of varies depends on what size your your final picture is going to be um but the higher the resolution the better um and what's and is it a cmyk process is it a uh, it is it's a cmyk printer uh mm-hmm. and it's a dye sublimation printing um mm-hmm. and it's printed on a roll it's not a direct transfer um but and, that, and does it does it uh, does printing on it have any effect on the acoustic um, absorption of the of the panel? 
That's another very good question. You got great questions. I appreciate you asking these because these are all part of the pitch, right? And it's not on purpose. Um, but no, it does not. Absolutely. Because it's a dye sub and not a paint spray, mm-hmm. it doesn't block any of the pores. The fabric absorbs the ink. Um, it's also heat activated. So that allows us to wash the fabric in the washing machine in cold water um, and put it back on if you need to. That's great. Um, which That's fantastic is important because I'll just show you this about our panels. You see this track running around the edge on the back? Yeah. That is how we hold the fabric on with a standard screen spline, like for a screen door. That's really cool. Yep. And that allows us to take the fabric off whenever you like. So you can change the What's it look like without the fabric? Um, That is where the insulation lives. Right, right, right. Uh, Like I said, we use rock wool. Mm-hmm. And then on the inside behind the rock wool, we cut our proprietary diffusion pattern into the frame, which enhances the absorption of the rock wool, Interesting. Um, which is important because you get a lot more absorption um, in a slimmer design. Right. Uh, it That's also right. helps tackle a lot of the low end because of the way, you know, energy goes in and it scatters it upon reflection and changes the return path on the way back out. So your one or two inch insulation is acting more like a three to four to five inch insulation. That's awesome. Jeff, you had a, you had a question. Well, actually, um, you know, I don't know if you have it handy or care to share. I, I love the picture, Alex, of your, you know, front view, what you see. And I think it's a great example of you can get a really, really good sound, but depending on what you where that room is and what that room uh, is going to look like is really dictated by. And there's, here's where the advantage of these panels are, whether it's an office, yeah. a, a conference room, anything else. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is what studio. This is what mine looks like. <laughs> so I look, I look normal from the front, but that, but the tent there that, that that's there is, is what my, my system looks like to, to be able to manage this, this, um, this thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, it's a, it's a little bit of a kit and, and, and again, not something you can put in a conference room, you know, so that's the, or, or something that someone would typically want to put in. And, and I've, I have thought about, um, putting nice panels up and everything else. I just haven't gotten, you know, I haven't figured out what to put in. We might have to have a conversation later about, about that, uh, no about problem. that rich. Yeah. So, so <laughs> make, make it look nice in here and, and still be, uh, absorptive, absorptive. Um, I did a, I did a quick test with these and I put them, oh, I'm really hot. Sorry guys. All of a sudden I'm very, very, very hot. I'm noticing. Um, I did a quick test of these in a very small acoustic chamber. In my case, it was a Studio Bricks booth. Let me back that down. One, two, one, two. Maybe your, one, two, is one, your original two. sound on? Yeah, I think original sound is actually off. Because it'll be loud. Uh, but uh, because I'm in Unity, Unity has taken over the gain control, apparently. Sorry, guys. How amateur. Um, okay. So I have found that in a really small booth, it made a dramatic improvement just to even add one panel over the existing foam that was in the booth. I couldn't believe the difference. That's great. Yeah. um, Let's go. We've got a ton of questions stacking up. So let's go ahead and jump into the first question. First one comes just from uh, Steve Uroff, it looks like, in Madison, Wisconsin. And Steve says, is there a minimum percentage of a wall that should be covered in panels for a worthwhile effect? Likewise, is there a maximum point of diminishing returns? 
That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so again, it depends on what your use case is, is going to be inside any given space, right? Uh, there are standards out there that are set for, I guess, what range would be acceptable in regards to the noise reduction coefficient. Um, and then our design team takes that and, and, and designs an optimal treatment plan for, for the, to optimal results, you know? Um, so there, there's not a golden standard, this percentage of treatment in any given room. And, you know, there's a lot of variations that could be in there. Um, and then it's also going to depend on which materials you're using, you know, uh, foam, fiberglass, rock wool, what have you, uh, because they all absorb different amounts of energy and, and have a different, uh, a final effect. Um, on the other side, I don't know that I would say that there's uh, a maximum level other than comfort, you know, um, like music and sound, everything is perceived differently. So um, as you're treating, uh, for example, we do a lot of jobs where there will be phases, you know, for like a restaurant, uh, phase one will be the ceiling, phase two will be some of the walls, phase three, so on and so forth. As you go through those phases, if you get to a point where you're satisfied and it sounds good, um, then that's perfect. Going above, above that would be maybe going over the maximum, uh, but it really depends on your, your kind of personal preference. Um, because there are those standards that are set for, for, to kind of start from and work with um, that gives us a good path to go down. But like I said, none of us here are exactly the same either. So, And, and do, you, do you do a lot of restaurants? We do do a lot of restaurants, actually. Uh, I wish because you did Because of our, our prints, especially, <laughs> we, um, we put a, we, we can strategically place them as artwork. We've had some clients yeah. put a frame around it as well. So it doesn't, nobody's the wiser that there's acoustic treatment in there at all. But it really changes the, the, you know, the whole feel of the restaurant. There's a restaurant that was in, in San Francisco and I just was amazed. It took me a little while to figure it out because I, I loved going there because I hate the din of restaurants. Like I don't want to hear anybody else. I don't want to hear the clinking and clacking. I don't want to hear the next table. I don't want to hear anything. I just want to be with the people that I'm there with and talk right. to them. And I knew that there was this one restaurant that it was wide open. People had four tops and they were doing their thing. But I felt like I could never hear anybody else. And I just kept on going in trying to figure it out. And it turned out they had acoustic, they had things that looked, it was a low ceiling, so it was only like nine feet. And then they had um, they had acoustic, uh, what looked like beams, what I thought were wooden beams were actually acoustic tiles that ran down there. And they all looked like beams and it, and it just was magical, you know. And from yeah. then on, I've been pretty un forgiving with other restaurants. <laughs> I understand. I leave my business card on a lot of dinner tables. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> next, next question. Next one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What is the best placement for acoustic panels in an average home office? In an average home office, the best placement. I would say something behind your... Um, behind your speakers or your microphone, you know, just like when we turn around to see the front or the, the back view, um, you want to catch those first reflections as you're talking against the wall before they come back to the microphone. Next, I would treat um, either directly behind you or maybe a cloud above you. Uh, say you've got an eight or nine foot ceiling in your home office, just a cloud above you will catch a lot. And then from there, I would maybe put one on either side of you to catch those first first reflections that way. So if we're talking, you know, two to three in the front, 
two to three in the back and one on either side, maybe a cloud. That's where I would start. Next question. Robert Sababadi in Poland says, when sound waves dissipate within an acoustic panel, do they generate heat or vibration within the panel? So effectively, do they get warmer in time during usage? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, it depends on, on the panel. Uh, absorption panels, um, it passes through and the friction of passing through that material uh, changes to heat. Um, I wish it created enough heat to to make it warmer because then I could transition that energy into something else right um but no it's uh, even in a large venue or theater you can walk up to the wall and the wall is going to be the same temperature when you walked in as when you walk out next question Andy Kokendorfer VR Florida up next can you explain the effect and placement of base trap tubes um I can talk more specifically on base traps in general. I, we don't make any tubes, so I'm not as hip to the technology behind that. But generally speaking, uh, low-end frequencies are large, and they build up in small spaces, uh, so corners uh, and things like that. Um, so I would I would try and treat the corners there. Um, larger energy, like larger waves, they don't move as fast and as far for as long as a smaller wave. Um, so it's, it's not as needed all over the place. So yeah, I'd stick with the corners. Next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. I have Atmos speakers with up-firing speakers. Would it be possible to have acoustic reflectors on the ceiling to make these more effective as height monitors for Atmos or oral 3D content? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, you say acoustic reflectors. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that exactly, other than it pretty much any hard surface is going to be a reflector because it's not absorbing it, right? So, uh, if you need more reflection in a particular area, maybe on your ceiling and you have treatment there, I might remove that treatment and see if that helps, helps fix your yeah, we've uh, we've had a couple of these built, and one of the things we find is that as soon as you start really deciding you want the room to be quiet, you really need explicit speakers. So if you want up up firing, doesn't really work as well in a in a near field system. Uh, that at least that's been my experience, and so you need to put speakers up there uh, to make that actually work. Uh, next question, uh, Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Rich, what is unique about the Wave Pro series offered by Proso uh, Acoustics? Does the design benefit from a particular placement and coverage in a room when compared with a typical panel? That's a good question. Um, yes. Uh, so our, like I said, our panels, our Wave Pro panels, start with the frame and the diffusion pattern cut into the frame behind the absorption. So right off the bat. Um, you know, rock wool is arguably the most absorbent material to use. Um, there are some others, but there are a lot of health and safety factors that come into play there as well. Fire ratings and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so rock wool on its own, starting there being one of the most absorbent options. If we enhance that absorption, then uh, that's going to make us more effective right off the bat compared to everybody else. We're the only ones doing it in this fashion. Um so that's cool for us. Uh, the other things that make us stand out, as you saw, are the standardized hole placements um, and machine screw inserts in there. And then, of course, the changeable fabric that can be machine washed and cleaned very easily. Um, and then multiple ways of, of mounting it. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? 
Second part was um, placement and coverage in a room with compared to a typical panel. What's the gotcha. design benefit? Yeah, so the Wave Pro panels are 10 to 15% more effective across all the frequencies um, than Rockwool on its own. Um, our Wave Pro panels compared to somebody else with maybe fiberglass, for example, you would use about a third of the treatment of our treatment less than you would fiberglass to get the same result. And you'd need about two thirds less than you would of foam. So think of putting up, you know, four to six panels versus eight to 20 panels um, as an alternative. And what is rock wool made of? Rock wool is upcycled um, waste product byproduct from the slag steel and basalt in industry. So, you know, steel and volcanic rock, and that is melted down and spun out into sheets, just kind of like cotton candy is. Um, Interesting. So it, it's rock and steel, which makes it very porous, uh, irregular. Um, it doesn't burn. It's antimicrobial. Um, so it's a lot of a lot of benefits to to using rock and steel as an uh, acoustic absorber. Do some people just use that completely just, I mean, as a general purpose, I'm just going to, instead of fiber, I mean, if they have the money, <laughs> instead of right. fiberglass. Right. Absolutely. Well, especially when it came out years ago, it was a bit more expensive than fiberglass for sure. But yes, yeah. people do use rock wool over fiberglass um, all the time. Um, right. It's a, it's a. It, I think I think it's a better product overall from the handling standpoint to the acoustic oh, yeah. effective standpoint. You know, fiberglass, for example, if you squeeze it, it stays there where rock wool is more rigid and it'll go back to its shape. So if you right. take your two inch of insulation and you squeeze it, you no longer have two inches of insulation with uh, fiberglass. Yeah. Um, and it's it's rock and steel. So it'll it'll you know, rub off like dust and stick stuff, but it's not little shards of glass yet. <laughs> exactly, we, had, we had our cats sit in, in, in fiberglass the other, the other a couple of weeks ago. It's, oh, man. It's exciting. <laughs> oh. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I had a question the, uh, about the frame that has the uh, ripple pattern in it. What is the uh, composition of that frame material? Is it a yeah. is it a particle board? Is it a... It is. It's how an, heavy it, is it? It's an, well, our two by four panels are about 22 to 25 pounds, one inch and two inch. Well, um, so they are heavy, but they're very solid. This M, it's an MDF, medium density fiberboard, but it's a very specific MDF um, that we get from Georgia Pacific out of Maine. Um, all the health and safety, you know, fire ratings, moisture resistant, antimicrobial, and lead certified that Rockwell has, this MDF also has on its own separately. So it doesn't burn, it's, you know, moisture resistant and fire rated all the way through, not just sprayed on top. And um, it doesn't, doesn't outgas uh, formaldehyde. Or no VOCs, no added formaldehyde. Yep, exactly. No Proposition yeah. 65 for you California guys. And what what about the health and safety issues of the Rockwell? Does it have to main, to maintain its health and safety rating? Does it have to be covered with the the covering on the outside? It doesn't. Um, it does dust. You know, so they're like if you're going to work with it raw, as with pretty you have much to wear the material, yeah. they'd mm -hmm. recommend wearing a mask. But it, it's no because our fabric comes on and off. It's important for us to be able to handle that Rockwell and it not be offensive um, to your skin or anything. And what? One final question is, since I didn't know what the weight of the panels was till now, if you're in, in a situation where a rental, uh, you know, person's renting and mm -hmm. their their lease may not allow, you know, 
sticking heavy screws into the wall. How yes. do you suggest uh, attachment or a situation? How do you, how would you go about mounting those panels in a way that they could be removed without damage to the walls weighing? Yeah. Them? Right. Um, they are heavy. Uh, I would never officially recommend any sort of 3M adhesive or what have you. Um, but I've heard of it being done. Um, but really our answer is going to be feet. Uh, because our holes are standardized placement, um, we have feet that so all the the three things you see behind me are all two foot by six foot panels on a foot that just makes it freestanding. Um, so in those situations, if you need to move it around or you're somewhere where you can't put stuff on the wall, it's a nice option to to still use our the way. And that you also change the angle of it, which would change their standing wave or you know absorption. So absolutely, that's a good idea. Absolutely. Flexibility and versatility, you know, second only to the aesthetic uh, effectiveness is uh, definitely a focus. Next question. Next question comes from Mickey Makachor in Manila in the Philippines. What is RT60? How is it measured? And how is treatment designed to attain or exceed the target RT60 measurement? Yeah, RT60 is measured by... uh, What we ask for a lot of times is what we call an impulse test or response, right? Where you're in a room, you hear the echo uh, and you do a, a hand clap or something and record it. And what we're doing is we're measuring the RT60 or the time it takes for that impulse response to continue and echo out, let it ring, you know, ring out until it's done. Um, that gives us an idea of what that room sounds like beforehand, uh, which just enhances our our ability to calculate what the results would be on the back end. Um, from there, our design team would take, you know, design the treatment to tailor that down. As I mentioned, there are standards um, for what different spaces and uses would, would be. For example, uh, a common gym maybe, or a conference room, for example, might be have an NRC rating of 0.15 to 0.20. And so we'll take that information, put treatment in place where our experts know that it's gonna be the most effective um, and try and get somewhere maybe around the 0.18 mark for an optimal, optimal treatment plan. Next question. Uh, it actually comes from me here in San Diego. I, I noted there's so much acoustic foam out there, particularly in the aftermarket. And I know you guys have yours specified as to its acoustic properties. But is there a quick and easy way to determine if somebody comes to me and says, I've got this stuff and I need to know what to do with it? Is do Can we tell quickly whether an existing foam panel is closed cell, open cell, test it and kind of determine whether it might be useful for something? Or is that possible to do after the fact? Sure. Um, so... Speaking foam, and we don't work with foam, so uh, my knowledge is limited at, you know, past a certain point, okay? Um, But uh, we've looked into it, we've done our investigating, um, so we do know some. Open cell foam is what you're gonna find for acoustic treatment. Closed cell foam is not going to absorb anything. You need those open cells for the energy to go in there and get trapped, um, where closed cell foam is going to reflect it and it's not going to absorb anything. Uh, so right off the bat, you can you can determine if it's going to be an, a good acoustic foam just by seeing if it's open cell or not. Um, Next question. Next question comes to us from George Whittem in Venice, California, here on the panel. How did you decide the pattern for the diffusion layer behind the absorption layer? Yeah, um, that came from our, our 
design expert and guy that developed the panel. Um, and it, it's, I can tell you it's tuned technically to the 500 Hertz band because it's center freak center band of human speech. Right. Uh, so it's a bit more all encompassing. Um, and the magic behind it is the, the, the curve of the arc, the distance between it and all of that. Um, other than that, I'm not real sure how he came up with it. Uh, um, other than to tell you, he's just a really smart guy, and that's why he's our acoustician on our team, and I'm a sales guy. <laughs> next question. You know, um, Douglas Carmichael's up next. Would there be an entry-level PavoTube equivalent in the acoustic paneling world for the average bedroom? And it's, I think he's just asking, is there an entry-level? What's the entry-level uh, way to uh, to jump into acoustic treatment? Um. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, when we're talking, you know, interfaces, there are lower cost ones and the higher cost ones, and they usually get better as you go up and dollar point, what have you. Acoustic treatment is kind of the same. You know, you can you can start with a lower cost option, uh, and if that works, great. And then as you go up and and quality and um, and product, then. Uh, It'll just get better. You'll use better. less. But yeah, I would say foam would, as much as I hate to recommend foam to people, would be the entry level because it's low cost, abundant. Um, yeah. And yeah, with enough, you can you can achieve good results. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand, up next. He says, do you also consult, apart from your wall panels, sound treatment for raised floors to eliminate sound transfers to offices and apartments and or apartments below your area of noise in the studio and so forth? That's a good question. Pros Acoustic for until a couple of months ago has been strictly um, sound attenuation inside of a space. We recently added a new product we're, we're proud about um, that will help on the soundproofing or the sound transmission side of things. Um, I can tell you the, the product is called Sonopan, um, but it's, it's a, there are two different worlds to those, those things, you know, uh, sound inside of a space versus going through. Um, and, and you're basically, is the Sonopan starting to approach, you know, floating a room? Is that the... It's so floating a room and having true soundproofing with double walls and dead space uh, is large and expensive. Uh, Sonopan is more of a um, alternative to like mass loaded vinyl where it, you put it inside the wall cavity or on top of existing drywall and another layer on there. So you're not losing as much space, but it 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 helps uh, absorb those vibrations and separate them in a, in a smaller, less costly fashion. Yeah, go ahead, George. Yeah, I've I've been recently brought in to to improve a uh, an ADU, you know, in Venice, where you know the upstairs. Can you define rentals. an ADU? Yeah, an ADU is an accessory dwelling unit. <laughs> That's what they call it here in California. When somebody adds more more living quarters to their property to raise their you know the amount of livable yep. space, um, and you know it was all done, fully finished, you know, beautiful work, but he's like. He 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 rec he said, "I don't want to know that anybody's home up there." <laughs> He's like, "I hear the footfall constantly, and yeah. that footfall is absolutely one of the most costly and challenging things to eliminate completely." Um, I, I, we have tried so many different systems, and it's usually <laughs> I like to use the term turducken. <laughs> you need a turducken <laughs> approach, so you need like 
this and this and this and all these different solutions combined in a in a clever way to even approach that uh, miracle of, of of modern science, which is I don't want to hear footfall upstairs. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's challenging. It is challenging. It's funny, you know, they solve that in uh, everything in that when I'm working overseas, so many of the buildings are built with concrete and you don't hear anything. <laughs> just like, it's just like it's mass. concrete blocks, just, just, just incredible mass. Uh, but, even, but even then, even with concrete, you still have to, if you really want isolation, the concrete itself has to be also yeah. uh, floating. And there, there's a company called Kinetics that makes unbelievable floor systems. Go yeah. to Kinetics Noise and check out what they, it's, it's insane what they have to do. Next question. Robert Sababadi in Poland again. Uh, what frequency range do acoustic panels work in? Where is the 3dB cutoff at the bottom and the top ends? Um, so like for hours, uh, 250 up to uh, way above where we can hear, uh, really all the way up to the, the, the higher end, um, it works really well in broadband panels which some might argue are not truly broadband because you know that low end and some of the high end may drop off but generally speaking what you see out there are, are considered broadband panels um, they would tackle most of that energy uh, the wave pro because of the diffusion pattern and scattering um, the reflections um, it helps helps tackle that low end a lot better um, there are no formal tests out there to test the combination of absorption and diffusion together. So the best we can formally tell you is, is you know, the difference of absorption compared to like rock wool without it out it there. But when, as George mentioned, when you put it in a space and you actually hear it, you can actually hear the difference even with a single panel um, pretty easily. That's great. Uh, next question. Robert Svoboda, back from Poland. Do acoustic panels only absorb sound from one side when they are placed on a hard surface, or can they be used to isolate between two speakers? That's a good question. So it depends on the panel. If the panel has a solid back to it, then that's going to be the back. If it's just insulation uh, and it can go you know, both directions, then yes, it'll go both directions. If you're wanting to separate something, it's always best to put a solid separator material surface, like a framed panel in between it, uh, than something that would go back and forth. Go, George. Yeah, I mean, like two of their panels, literally back to back, would probably be the best solution, just yeah. creating a new barrier between the two. Now you're going to get double layer of barrier from the two panels and the absorption and diffusion, like that whole system as a hybrid solution would be probably extremely effective, you know? So that would yeah. be a really good way to go. Next question. Rob Collins in Raymore, Missouri says, I have seen some gamer and or streamer spaces that have acoustic hexagon panels behind the computer in a pattern. How much does this shape, uh, how much does the shape of the panel or layout of the panels affect its performance? Sure. Um, we're really looking at uh, the aesthetic side for that part. You know, we can make hexagon panels as well. Um, so I, the shape of a single panel isn't going to make that much of a difference, in my opinion. However, it, especially with ours, um, small, more smaller panels with some spacing is actually slightly more effective than one larger solid panel um, because it adds some more diffusion properties and, and irregularity uh, to what a, a single solid panel wouldn't have on its own. Good, George. 
Yeah, I've, I've dealt with those exact things you're seeing. They're incredibly plentifully, plentiful and cheap. And uh, the thing is, they're, they're only good for like flutter echo or higher frequency. They don't really do anything. Like if you wanted to use them in a small space, they're useless. But yeah, as a wall covering to knock down the higher frequency flutter echo and reflection, they do okay because they're less than a half inch thick. So they, they just right. can't possibly control what below a thousand or even 2000 Hertz. But, um, and if I, if I'm not mistaken, I think those may be foam as well. Um, uh, they're made of PET or like, oh, a, okay, like PET. a felt, yeah. you know, like a felt material, um, yeah. which apparently now is incredibly plentiful and cheap I, so, <laughs> yeah. um, because of the unbelievable varieties and cheapness of them. Um, but that's what they can do, but they can't do yeah. your panels are so good in the smaller room because of their effectiveness at lower frequencies. That's, that's where they just, you know, I literally just put one over the foam because that was what I was able to do. The foam was pre-glued. This is right. a very common problem. A lot of the ISO booths that you buy, Whisper Room, not so much because you can remove the foam, but vocalbooth.com and uh, Studio Bricks, the, the existing two-inch foam is very permanently attached to the walls. So just to be able to take your panel and hang it right over what's there, only taking up about an additional two inches and getting a tremendous improvement is uh, a huge selling point. I mean, I, I tested it myself. I did it on my YouTube channel. You can hear it. It really does work. It's really, really impressive. Yeah. Thank you. Next question. Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin's up next. Are panels useful for blocking external sound sources, particularly from infiltrating a conference room? Uh, from... So, so, External sound sources from another room outside. Yeah, I think of, it's just from the hallways or the. Yeah. Uh, no, panels inside of a space are not going to have any effect on the sound energy coming from outside of that room. That's where the soundproofing or sound transmission side of things comes in. Um, yeah, so it's you'd have to tackle it from that that way. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. How do you suggest dealing with large glass partition walls or large glass windows? Sure. It's always a challenge. Um, that's kind of like these panels behind me that are, are just freestanding and, and mobile. Uh, that's kind of a solution. But it also depends on your space. You know, we do do we do see a lot of conference rooms, for example, that have one wall that is completely glass, maybe to the outside, maybe another wall that is completely glass to the rest of the building. Um, and then they've got two end walls. So our approach in, in treating that would be how we we would kind of fix it. And it is a big limitation. Um, treating the ceiling, putting stuff that's freestanding in front of the glass, that's kind of the route we would go. Uh, go, George. Yeah, if you have two literally parallel facing layers of glass, that is an, a, an absolute you know nightmare. And all you can do is damp or damp down one of those walls, cover it in heavy draperies, and that's about it. And throw the yeah. architect under the bus. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. <laughs> yeah, one thing. They do make uh, noise-absorbing uh, blinds or louvers, sorry, um, something like this, uh, that you could lower down that are designed to absorb about 70% of the reflection. Yep. Yeah. Next question. But you're, you're still covering, either way, you're covering the glass, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, you won't be able to see, th you, you're <laughs> destroying the, the utility of the glass by covering right. it. Right, for sure. Next question. 
Uh, have you had, this from Douglas Carmichael, have you had interest in your products from the real estate sector for reducing noise in multifamily housing? We have, um, and especially on the, the new product, the Sonopan sound transmission stuff, that's going to be huge for that, that, that route. Um, I haven't done a lot with real estate market outside of, you know, corporations that maybe do hotel rooms or things like that in the building side, putting panels up. Um, and I, I don't know, but I might speculate panels can be an expensive option to put in as a staging, um, thing that would have to be removed once the, the unit is sold. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. Does Pros Acoustics offer sustainable, non-VOC, non-toxic acoustic products? Yes, all of them are. That's great. <laughs> there you go. Next question. Next question comes from Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin. I have a business space with curved walls that would benefit from sound absorption. Do the panels need to be rectangles or can they be arced to match the wall? That's a good question. Um, we don't currently make any arced panels. Um, we have done some round wall spaces or curved wall spaces, and there's usually a blocking um, that's put on there before we put the panel on there. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Have you had any orders from the healthcare market? I bet your products would be useful for reducing noise in healthcare facilities and thus patient and or staff stress. Yes, healthcare is a big is a big aspect. Um, one from the antimicrobial properties of the insulation and you know MDF itself, but also the ability to take the fabric off and wash it or you know steam it, put it through the medical facility cleaning process that it needs to do. Um, we've done several of those jobs. Yeah. Do Do you have uh, Do you have people who change those? You know that they're printing things on the front that that will, you know regularly change the what what's on there the prints i mean do they get a couple sets for the same thing and then go oh, because it sounds like it's relatively easy to make a change it is yeah um we've got lots of people that do that uh house of worship is a big market that does that for us because uh, they're buying banners for seasons holidays uh, r regularly right um to be able to double duty that banner purchase onto existing acoustic treatment has been a really big win for us and them in the same aspect. It also adds the ability for the dealer integrator who sold the panels initially to have a reoccurring revenue stream uh, for them to offer yeah, that yeah. service to go in and change it for those people if they want. And and do you have some that are just really long? So you might have a big section that, that you would take out. Um, I, I know a lot of your panels are in a specific grouping, but do you have do you sometimes have configurations that are like four feet high and sixteen feet wide for that type uh, of bannering? Like a single panel? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the largest single panel we make is eight foot by four foot, and that's because we make it and ship it. That's based on the shipping limitations uh, right. from there. Um, we have done some of those projects where it, it requires a larger panel. And what we'll do for that, because of the nature of our fabric, some corners and it stretching over the edges, is say we, you know, we'll send six two by four trays. Uh, mm -hmm. to be mounted, butted up together with a single large piece of fabric that goes over all of it. So it ships in a smaller format. It's easy to mount and then put That's it great. all together on site. Next question. Matt Farrell in Boston has our next question. How do you attach the panels to the ceiling? Any recommendations for a room with eight to nine foot ceilings? Yes, absolutely. So all of our panels are going to have, they come with one clip set to mount to the wall. 
but on additional clip sets and holes, additional holes are in each panel as well. So to mount it flat on the ceiling, you would just get an additional clip set to put it that way. Or the holes are a standard size. They're a 1024 screw size. So some eye bolts and wire and a hook to suspend it down as the cloud would be another option to do it that way. Next question. George Whittem here on the panel, Venice, California. How do you get your product into huge hardware retail chains? How did you get it in there? <laughs> uh, uh, the answer's different for every one of them, right? Um, <laughs> uh, we're, like I said, Pros Acoustic was started by some experts in the industry. And some of the, one of those was uh, manufacturer's rep firm who's been in the music industry for, uh, you know, 20 plus years. So getting it into the music industry stores, um, I don't want to say it was a part of normal business, but we did have a foot in because we already had those relationships with those, those dealers. Um, from there, you know, Home Depot, Honestly, you can go online and submit products to be accepted or not at Home Depot. And we went round and round with them and they accepted it. And it's been a great thing ever since. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What percentage of a small room, say a 14 foot by 20 foot room, would you want covered with your panels? Assume it's a rectangular with thick carpeting. Does every wall need at least some coverage? Um, say we're using it for, you know, a home studio like this video conferencing calls um, on our website we have you know designs that are done for different size rooms and different levels of treatment with panels in place um, all of our kits are designed to they're all either they're all 32 square foot of panel and designed to treat up to 100 square foot of space so basically every 100 square foot of space you get another kit um, and then look at the the placement guidelines online and and you're off and running. Uh, go ahead, George. Yeah, I like that you guys have that. You kind of taking some of the guesswork out of that. I know, you know, it is depending on what is being recorded, Roscoe, obviously, like what's the source, how loud, how many sources, like if is it a bunch of people or one. Um, I know when, when I'm designing rooms, it's mostly designed around a voice actor, so a single voice, a single person, so we can focus how much treatment we need to treat that one area instead of treating the entire space, right? So, but the rules of thumb really are, you want about 70% of all the hard surface, including the floor, soft, you know, as a really general term, yeah. right? So that the floor being carpet will help uh, tremendously. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, looking at your website, which is really nice because it has that uh, good, better, and best examples. And here's an example of the best for the 14 by 20 room. And I was gonna ask you, the you show these uh, panels uh, staggered, I mean, uh, across the edge, they don't, they're not fully covering the walls. Do you stagger them across in parallel walls so that there's, when there's a blank space on the left wall, there would be a panel opposite on the right wall to, to eliminate the standing waves or uh, um, is it, or does it matter, you know? Uh, I think I understand your question. Um, and yeah, those panels are, are, are placed evenly across those side walls. Um, but, and that's basically, you know, your, your angle where those reflections are going to hit, hit the most. Next question. Peter Moore back from Auckland, New Zealand, uh, where I live the, at the moment, it has a very low ceiling. What recommendations would you have for such an environment versus a normal ceiling height? Um, the, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> um, 
if you can't treat the ceiling, then more, um, that's a tough question. Um, I honestly, I'd probably have to see more about your space and, and what's inside of it to answer that with any, any solid information. Next question. Um, Next question comes from Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany. Why do your panels have a phase on each side? Uh, is this for optical or acoustical reasons? Where it tapers back from the front to the back, you mean? Um, there, There's a couple of reasons. It does add some additional diffusion benefits by having that um, angled back. But also, as you saw, our panels or our fabric has some corners and stretches over the back. Um, and so that allows us that that corner point to to put it on there. So Next it question. does have some benefit to both sides, the, the effectiveness and just functionality of the panel. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Rich, what aesthetic principles can be used when placing a cluster of panels that will be visible for presentation? What latitude do you have to accommodate aesthetics without compromising effectiveness? Um, that uh, do you do you mostly just think about the acoustics, or do you do you ever have to think about like, well, how's it going to look? Like, you know, like this is going to be in front sure. of a lot of people. Sure, we do. And it, it okay, thank you. Um, it kind of depends on the job, you know. Uh, the focus of a treatment plan, it varies person to person and job to job. Um, our designer is first and foremost effectiveness and then budget friendly. Um, aesthetics, aesthetics is great, but it typically and always adds additional cost to it. So if we're aware that there's the budget for it or they want it to look a certain way, then we'll design that way. Um, sometimes there'll even be, uh, you know, like an interior designer involved with the design team to help on that aesthetic side of things as well. Next question. Stuart, uh, Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany says, do you sell your products outside of the United States? We do not have an international distribution plan currently, uh, but that's obviously the goal eventually. Yeah. So if you know anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's an offer. Yeah. Stefan, think about it. Think about uh, your, your, uh, your acoustic future. Uh, next, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand says, um, yes, I could look at your website, but in the interest of discussion, do you ship internationally? And he's specifically interested in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Do you ship it internationally? So you might not have an international uh, right. partner, but do you actually ship it internationally? So we are, you know, we, we're a business to business model as the manufacturer. We don't sell directly to the, the, the consumer. Um, some of our partners and, you know, dealer partners might be able to help from that aspect, but we don't currently directly know. Rich, thank you so much for your time. It's My been pleasure. Really Th guys, thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really excited. I have to admit that I didn't know much about it until until I was researching for today's show and just super impressed. Um, now I'm trying to think about how I can rebuild my room, make it look sleek and cool. And Well, and, send uh, me the dimensions and some photos and we'll help you out there. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Sounds great. Uh, thank you. Thank you again. Um, you and, and, thank, and thank you to the panel uh, for all the great uh, conversation in the first hour and the second hour. And of course, thank, thank you to the producers who asked all these questions, uh, kept, us, kept us going uh, through the first and second hour. 
And thanks to the incredible team, there's a small village that come that that rises up every day to produce this show. This isn't just Zoom. Uh, there's those people cutting the show and doing the graphics and figuring those things out. There's also people managing who's showing up and whether they're ready and and all the other bits and pieces. And then there's finally an incredible development team that's constantly making this show better. So we really appreciate your contribution. Uh, we traveled the Tlaloc Traversal. We traveled 172,000 miles today uh, with all these questions from all over the world. It was really impressive today. Uh, 278,000 kilometers. And that is 1.369 mi- not million, billion bananas for scale. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. That was a very international... Absolutely. Big day for Australia. I think we got got four continents out of that. Yeah. Four four or five. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. All right, I'm going to... Rich, nice job. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Rich, I'm going to send you some measurements. We'll figure this out. (laughs) (laughs) I I want it to look like the Enterprise. 